Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today, we've both got lots to say about making English muffins at home, and we'll do a preview review of our last breakfast bake of the month, a grab-and-go cookie that's perfect for busy mornings. Finally, we'll call the preheated book club to order and talk about Lori Colwyn's home cooking. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, back in episode 182 in June, we discussed Mm -hmm. the James Beard Award nominees in the Baking and Desserts book category, and I'm here to tell you that they have announced their winner. Oh, I can't wait. It is Daniel Leder and Lauren Chapman's book, Living Bread, Tradition and Innovation in Artisan Bread Making. You know, that is amazing, and we talked at length about those nominees Back in June, it also, Andrea, doesn't really surprise me given the year of baking that people have had and how important bread was to so many people. I was thinking that too. And, you know, I didn't purchase this book. I have so many bread books that that I didn't get this one. But I did get Dappled, which was one of the other nominees. And I've really been enjoying baking from that book. I also wanted to point out that in the health category, another baking book was recognized and that is by Jeffrey Larson and it's called Gluten-Free Baking at Home, 102 Foolproof Recipes for Delicious Breads, Cakes, Cookies, and More. Oh, that's excellent. And that is something that lots of our listeners are baking gluten-free or looking for gluten-free recipes. And Andrea, don't you find too that, I mean, often you and I just stumble across a recipe that just is naturally gluten-free. We love to use alternative flours. So these can be really interesting, even if that's not your primary consideration. Yeah, gluten-free baking has just come such an incredibly long way from back in the day when it first started. There's so many options and alternatives now. And I think that there are very many gluten-free bakes that you could put side by side with regular flour and have quite the competition. I think those gluten-free bakes are really holding their own these days. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, people often say this, and it's a cliche, but it was an honor just to be nominated. I think any <laughs> anybody that was nominated in this category, those are cookbooks worth checking out. I mean, imagine yes. just getting to the point where you were where you were nominated. You're probably doing some great writing and recipe development. So true. Andrea, I have a real soft spot for cookbooks that list the number of recipes. Oh. I don't know. I really appreciate that. Like 102. Like, you know exactly how many you're buying. I like, too, that <laughs> I feel like you get a little bonus. It's not just 100. Mm. No. You got two extra. Oh, also true. <laughs> Je- yes. Jeffrey really has has our back on this oh, one. Goodness. Those two extra. All right. Well, listeners, let us know if you check those out. And if you've made any bakes from that award-winning book, we'd love to hear about it. Andrea, I have a new little delight in my kitchen, and that is my odd size teaspoon and tablespoon measuring set. Have I told you about these? Odd size. That's not ringing a bell. In fact, I don't even know what that means. (laughs) So I think not. (laughs) It means those sizes that you sometimes get asked for, but there's no specific spoon in a regular set. So what's a regular set is like a tablespoon, a teaspoon, 
half a teaspoon, quarter teaspoon, and eighth of a teaspoon. Yeah? I think that's my five that are in my ring. Um, and then I have a half of a tablespoon as well in mine. Oh, so, nice. it, you know, a teaspoon and a half. I use that one a lot. Yeah. No, that's just one of the handy ones that I have in this set. So if a normal set is five, I think I have ten in this. And it comes with a third, uh, three-eighths, one-sixteenth, two tablespoons, half a tablespoon. I'm trying to think of something else. Anyway, it's one of those measures that you never need it till you need it. And I love it. It gives me so much pleasure to correctly just measure the right dose without having to, you know, use two spoons or something arduous like that. Well, I have an equally pleasurable measuring spoon set, and it came from listener Jana and Craig, and they sent it to oh. me after listening to one of the episodes where I think I made some comment about, you know, not really measuring or whatever. And uh, <laughs> it's so cute. It's things like a smidge and a pinch yes. and a dash. Oh. Yeah. So... Between my set and your set, I think we've got it all covered mm -hmm. now. <laughs> yes, it's very whimsical measuring going yes. on in London and Olympia. <laughs> yeah, there. I think mine is from King Arthur, but you can find them many, many places. And it's one of those things, again, like, is it necessary to have this 116th or this pinch? Maybe not, but it's certainly joyful and delightful. So I say yes. I say yes, too. And the other thing I love about one of my measuring spoon sets that I don't get to use as much now that I have a stainless steel fridge is that it had mm. magnets on it. And so I used to be nice. able to keep my measuring spoons on my fridge with the magnets. And that was really handy. And it was fun for my daughter when she was little and, you know, still Aww. crawling around and playing with things on the fridge. Now that I don't have that magnetic space, they're in a drawer and they're often kind of jumbled around. So I kind of miss that. Okay. Several episodes ago, we were talking about you hanging a hook for your his and hers pot holders. Oh, that's right. Get out the drill, baby, because maybe you need another <laughs> for your teaspoon and tablespoon set. What a great idea. I could just put mm -hmm. up a little magnetic strip and then oh. just have it right there by oh my, my stove. That's a yeah. great idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so Oops. nice to put things where you need them and use them. Yes. And if that's yes. not the drawer, then don't put them in the drawer. I love that idea. Okay, I'll work on that. Good suggestion. Stefan, last week we talked about making these homemade English muffins from Gemma over at Bigger Boulder Baking, and you and I were both pretty excited about it. So yeah. let's go ahead and see how they turned out for both of us. Why don't you kick us off and tell us how they turned out for you? Well, I was so excited to tackle these, and if you heard our intro last week, it was pretty in-depth. The most important thing to remember here is that the rise time on these homemade English muffins is really long. It's a minimum of 12 to 18 hours, and then there's a second shorter rise of about 45 minutes. So this isn't one you can just kind of wake up and say, hmm, an English muffin sounds good for breakfast. Right. <laughs> you had to have that thought the day before, like the morning before even. Yes, some planning. Remember that. So I, I planned it out. I counted back from 18, and... Andrea, I would just also like to say that another important thing is to watch Gemma's video. I, I'm not the best about watching videos. I think you do that much more than I do. But I thought, you know what, I've never done English muffins before. There's some tricky things involved here. I'm going to do it. And I'm really glad I did. It's about eight minutes long, but I found it really, really helpful. Did you watch the video too? I did watch the video, and I agree. I found it very helpful, and I found that she gave a lot of tips or explanations that 
can carry through to the rest of your baking, mm-hmm. things that aren't just useful in this recipe. So it's a good investment of your time, I think. Well, speaking of that, Andrea, the first thing she says as you're mixing your dry ingredients together in step one, you're doing your flour, your yeast, and your salt. And Gemma says, never put your yeast and your salt in the same place in the bowl when you are whisking together your dry ingredients because the salt will kill the yeast. I have never heard that before. I'm familiar with that, and I had never heard the tip to put them in separate sides of the bowl. I think that's a good tip, but I had always heard to mix them in separately. So like in this first instruction where I see add the flour, yeast, and salt, what I typically would do would add the flour and the salt and get those all mixed together and then mix my yeast in so that it's spread throughout. Right. Yeah. I liked her tip to do it on opposite sides of the bowl and kind of mix it in gently, and then you can put it all together. Yeah. It's great. Then you are adding your liquid ingredients in a separate jug. Measuring cup. The milk, the water, and the butter. You can either microwave that or put that in a uh, saucepan on your on your stovetop, letting that get lukewarm but not too hot, mixing the dry and the wet together. Here was a really important point. The dough will be quite soft and a little sticky, but you want to be sure that you don't add too much of that liquid and and she says maybe you need to hold some back I don't know what kind of flour you're using I don't know the humidity in your kitchen this day and that was a really good tip I used oh like just there was just a smidge left I don't even know how much it would have been immeasurable but I didn't use the whole liquid how about you I did use the whole liquid, but I did hold back as she suggested because I played around a little bit with my flour. So the recipe calls for 355 grams of all-purpose flour. I used 255 grams of all-purpose and 100 grams of whole wheat. Nice. Especially since I sort of fooled around with that. I thought this may need more water. It may need less The only other thing I want to put a little question mark next to is in step two, where you are melting your milk, water, and butter, and she says, take care not to let it get too hot. I'm worried that maybe I did. I would have preferred a temperature there. Me too. Because if you're getting it hot enough to melt the butter, Mm -hmm. it's pretty hot. So I let mine cool down a little bit. Then you put your liquid into your dry ingredients and scrape down the bowl. My dough was really sticky, and I was glad she said, don't worry about that. I covered it with cling wrap and put it aside for a full 18 hours. It's supposed to get nice and bubbly and it will grow, but not in the way you think of like a traditional bread dough growing because it's still really wet. At least mine was. So it kind of grew up the sides of the bowl, but it wasn't in a ball shape, I would say. How was yours at this point? I would agree with that. It reminded me so much of my overnight sourdough, no-knead bread that I make. So I I was very familiar with it. I did a 16-hour rise because I started Mm -hmm. at 5 p.m. the night before, and then I was turning it out at 9 a.m. the following morning. And I took the bowl over to my husband and said, hey, smell this. Yeah. (laughs) Which usually is not a good thing. You know, people always do that with the spoiled milk or something. But uh, (laughs) in this case, he smelled it. He goes, oh, that smells so good. You know, it it smells like alcohol. I mean, it really Mm -hmm. had that fermentation going on. So I felt like that meant it was definitely working, even though, as you said, it's It's not like it formed a traditional big ball like a a normal first rise will do. And I think she says in the video, too, it's going to taste kind of, or it's going to smell kind of beery. And that's what you want. And I thought mine did Mm -hmm. as well. Then you scrape out your dough, put it onto a floured surface, let it rest a little bit for the gluten to relax. So now she says you can roll it out to about 
two centimeters or slightly over an inch. Uh, please note that in the video she says to one centimeter, but she thought that was too thin later. But I thought that mine were much too thick at the end product, so I might go back to one centimeter if I did these again. I cut them out with my cookie cutter and they're already just like enormous. <laughs> and I only got five and they were massive already at this point. I let them rest for 40 to 45 minutes and they were even bigger. <laughs> I had kind of the opposite experience. So I did my conversion of what two centimeters would be because the way that instruction is phrased, it says you can roll it out to about two centimeters or slightly over an inch, which in mm -hmm. my head, I thought, oh, she's saying that two centimeters converts to slightly over an inch, but it doesn't. Two centimeters yeah. is like 0.78 of an inch. So yeah. that kind of threw me. And it turns out I don't have a good way of rolling something that is three quarters of an inch to an inch high. Yes. I have those cheaters that I can put on my rolling pin and I use those to roll pie crust. Right. But the deepest they go to is to like five eighths of an inch. Okay. I did unfortunately I think roll mine too flat because I okay. out of my first cutting I got eight and then yeah. I re-rolled the dough and got another four. Oh, wow. Okay. With my second batch, or as I'm calling it, my second roll of the four, those, I just patted them into shape and sure. didn't roll it out. So then I do think those were closer to an inch, and I thought that size was much better. Well, ultimately, I'm not sure then it mattered that mine were really big. You are now ready, after that second rise, to get your skillet ready. So you're going to heat a large nonstick frying pan over a steady medium to medium low heat. Using a flat spatula, carefully move the muffins from your parchment, they're still raw at this point, to the pan. I had a lot of trouble at this point. Mine were really still very sticky and I couldn't get them up. So my kind of beautiful but large muffins <laughs> then kind of went lopsided at this point as I'm like flinging them off the spatula. You know, the dough's like sticky. I'm trying to like get it off of the spatula in my fingers and it wasn't the prettiest, but I finally got the first batch of three in my skillet and you do want to leave a good space. So don't be tempted to put all of your muffins in in one go. And then the really important tip that she talks about in the video is you want a lid because what this helps do is create some steam so that they are cooking through, but you're using a dry skillet. So turn your oven fan on because I set my smoke detector off at this point. And I don't know, Andrea, was medium to medium high, maybe a little high in your mind? Because mine got pretty black. This is funny. I made a note here as well. So the recipe instruction says medium to medium low. Oh, sorry. Yeah, medium low. Yeah. My favorite burner on my stove, isn't it funny I have a favorite burner? But I do. Not funny. No. It's the burner that has the words. So the way that it goes on my favorite burner is power boil, mm -hmm. high, mm -hmm. medium, low, simmer. Okay. And that particular burner has multiple rings where the gas can come out. Yes. And if you're on medium, it's coming out on the big ring. And if you switch it to low, it comes out on the small ring. Okay. And so I don't really have a good medium low. I can't, yeah. you can't put it between those two settings. 
for my first batch because as you said I didn't want to crowd the pan I did it at medium and I did burn them on a couple of those on the the first side where you do the six to seven minutes right so on my second batch I switched to low and that worked better it's almost exactly what happened to me as well. It was starting to smoke. I was turning the smoke <laughs> detector off. And I just thought, that's that's too high. Kids, breakfast. That's too high. <laughs> so I went down. Now, mine were really big. So I was a bit worried about them cooking all the way through. But they did so beautifully in exactly the time that is recommended there. And so after the first side, you take the lid off for the next side. And that's just another three to four minutes. Mine were not pretty. They were too dark, but I was able to cut that off if necessary. And for me, they were really ugly duckling muffins because they tasted really great. I think that is a perfect description of them. My daughter walked in and saw them sitting on the wire rack, and she looked at me and she said, what are those? (laughs) That's not what you're looking for when you've mm -mm. made something that's supposed to be a replica of something that's commercially available (laughs) and I said well obviously those are English muffins and she raised an eyebrow and said now that's interesting (laughs) teenagers but I'm here to tell you that all of us ate them with nary a complaint and sure the ones that were a little more burned I put those to the side but the ones that um, didn't get too burned We sliced those open. We slathered them with butter. Mm. I made the comment to my husband that this is one of those recipes that you don't know until you're finished whether all of the work is worth it or not. And so he's eating and he goes, oh, I can tell you all of the work is totally worth it. And I didn't say anything. But in my head, I'm like, yeah, dude, you didn't do any of the work. (laughs) So that made me laugh. But the fact that you can freeze them, I do think – does make the work worth it because you can just crank these out and then go ahead. I would probably pre-slice them if I was going to freeze them. Mm, Yeah. And then freeze them, put them in a plastic sleeve, and then she says they toast up really well. And I did try that the next Mm -hmm. day, and I agree with that. I do too. And since I only had five, they really didn't stay around. And in fact, as I'm cutting them for my family, I'm like, these are really big. We'll probably each only need a half. Well, no, we (laughs) all had a whole. And (laughs) it was very good. They tasted great. It had a really nice chewy texture. It did have that really faint beery taste, which was Mm -hmm. really nice. They toasted up great. And you got to love Gemma on the video. She says, you know, you have to eat these right away with slathered in butter. And there's really no better way in my mind But Andrea, I went a little fancy, and I made that whipped pumpkin butter that I couldn't get out of my head. We talked about in the first episode of September during the roundup of the fall breakfast bakes. Yes, that was the one that had caught my eye. So you made the creamy version, or did you make the pumpkin butter that's more like apple butter? I made the creamy whipped butter version, and I was... It made enough, I could tell with the ingredients, that I wanted to gift some to a friend who's vegan. So I had some vegan butter, and that's really all that I substituted. I pumped up a little bit of the pumpkin because I didn't think it was pumpkin-y enough. And I used some freshly grated nutmeg and a little bit more brown sugar. Oh, my gosh. It's 
really good and it's divine on these English muffins and my friend that I gifted it to my friend Angelique she reports it's really good on sourdough waffles so if you're going to choose just one in that list that we talked about back in the first episode of September maybe consider making it the whipped butter nothing says fall like pumpkin butter indeed (laughs) I'm going to try that I think that's a great idea I'm glad you experimented with that yeah I don't know that this is going to make my regular rotation, to be honest. It's just a little bit too easy to buy English muffins. And good English muffins, yeah. And good English muffins. Um, But I did think this was fun to try, and I do think I will do it more often, but I'm not sure it's going to be something I always have homemade English muffins in the fridge or freezer. It would be fun if you were doing like a homemade McMuffin or some kind of breakfast sandwich too to take that extra step and make the homemade English muffin because that would just be over the top and fun. And yes, as I proved, I made them big and they cooked up very well also. And that could be fun for a breakfast sandwich or something. Oh, yeah. Or as your basis for your eggs benedict oh my gosh, my husband loves eggs benedict. So does mine. I just thought of that. I was like, okay. Now I know what I'm doing with the rest of these. (laughs) (laughs) Well, switching gears a bit, we have the last bake-along of September. This is a preview review since we will be on to our October theme next week already. But we wanted to end with a nice grab-and-go option. And we're introing a cookie called the Healthiest Breakfast Cookie. This comes from Jess at a website called Choosing Chia. She's got all kinds of great-looking recipes on her site. And she says these are the best healthy breakfast cookies ever. Andrea, do you know what struck me as I looked at these ingredients? Mm, That you had everything in your pantry? Well, that's for sure. But it's also like a granola in a cookie. It really is. So if you are a regular granola maker or want to be, you might have all of these ingredients in your pantry as well. Starting with some rolled oats she specifically calls for gluten-free if that's a concern for you of course do that otherwise I think any kind of rolled oats would work almond flour Andrea I've got some of that left over mm-hmm. sunflower seeds pumpkin seeds almonds sesame seeds chia seeds some dried cranberries dark chocolate chips teaspoon of cinnamon some salt maple syrup tahini or almond butter and she says she likes to mix both and why not Vanilla and an egg or a flax egg if you would like to make this vegan. Yes, this is very similar to my granola recipe. And I was teasing yeah, you when I said you have all of these ingredients in your pantry because I I don't think most people would. There's quite a long list here. But I do have most of these because I make the granola. I don't have the dried cranberries and I'm not sure I'm going to use those. My family does not like dried fruit, especially in cookies. I think they find okay. that a bit of a bait and switch. So I don't think it's going to hurt to take that out because no. I often I don't include it in my granola for the same reason. But I'm really excited about the tahini or the almond butter. I recently bought some organic creamy almond butter and I don't know if it's just that it's a different brand or if it's that it's been a while since I've had it, but I just love it so much. I've been putting it in everything. I've been putting it in my smoothies. I've been mixing it with sriracha and soy sauce and making peanut sauce for vegetables at night. It's just so good. Oh, I said a peanut sauce, an almond sauce for vegetables. (laughs) It's so good. I'm using it on everything. I think it would be great on those homemade English muffins. What's not? It sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So good. If you do have another favorite nut butter, then go ahead and sub that too. I think that would be absolutely all right. Oh, yeah. 
then you're just basically preheating your oven, lining your baking pan with parchment, mixing the dry ingredients together, mixing the wet ingredients together, mixing them both together, using a cookie scoop, and then pressing down with your hands. She points out these cookies won't spread. Of course, there's no leavening in there. And baking for about 12 to 14 minutes. I'm really in the mood for an easy grab-and-go breakfast. This is nice if you commute as part of your morning and need to have breakfast on the go. These would definitely work. And it's also just sometimes fun to have the same ingredients in a different way. I think so too. And obviously I didn't make these for our recording today, but I am making them this weekend. And I know that I'm going to have just a nice big stack of them. So I will post pictures in our Facebook listeners group so you can see how they turned out because I I did have to refill. I was low on my pumpkin seeds and my sunflower seeds, so I had to refill those. And I I can't wait to make these. I think they're going to be really good. Oh, I can't wait to see your pictures. Well, remember, we'll have a link to all of the recipes we've talked about today in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 196, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as on our Facebook group. Andrea, it's time for our preheated book club discussion. And this month, we're talking about Lori Colwin's 1988 classic, Home Cooking. Now, you're the one who selected this memoir, and I have to say, your timing was impeccable. I had just seen a mention in the Waitrose Food Magazine the week before. So tell me how you found out about it. Good old Waitrose. I originally discovered Lori Colwyn through her fiction books, and specifically I read one called Happy All the Time, which she published in 1978. It's a romance, and it's also a comedy of manners, and I really enjoyed this book because, a spoiler alert, the couples actually stay together in the end. I thought it was an interesting inside portrait of two very different marriages. And then when I started looking at her other books, I was surprised to discover that she also had these nonfiction books, and many of them centered around food. Mm. So she's been on my mind for a while, and I suppose I just finally got around to it. This book and its sequel, called More Home Cooking, were huge bestsellers in the U.S. and have been inducted into the James Beard Foundation Cookbook Hall of Fame. Though it's never been out of print in the U.S., here in the U.K., Home Cooking wasn't published until 2012. In the foreword of my edition, the author's editor and friend, Juliet Anan, says home cooking is like Nigella Lawson's How to Eat or Nigel Slater's Kitchen Diaries with more writing and less recipes. Since I love both of those writers' books, I was especially excited to jump onto this memoir. I love her style. Throughout, she's very casual, and I can see the influence she's had on modern-day food bloggers Mm. with her style. It's like you're sitting down and having a conversation with her, and you get all of her thoughts and opinions thrown right in with the recipe instructions. Mm -hmm. And the recipes are sometimes called out at the end of a chapter, but oftentimes they're just part of the text. For example, the zucchini fritters in the How to Disguise Vegetables (laughs) chapter. She just casually walks you through the steps, shredding the zucchini, mixing in some whipped egg whites, adding the remaining egg yolks, milk, and some flour, and then frying them up. It feels like what someone would say if you called them and said, tell me how you made those delicious zucchini fritters. I particularly loved her chapter on bread baking and her philosophy that a good bread dough should wait for you and not the other way around. In the chapter titled, Bread Baking Without Agony, she includes a recipe for what she considers to be a foolproof but professional loaf that takes kindly to whatever neglect you throw at it. 
Lori believed in simple, comforting food, well-prepared and unpretentious. And in that regard, she was really the forerunner of chefs like Ina Garten and Nigella Lawson, who have made this same ethos the cornerstone of their careers. In her chapter titled Nursery Food, she says that people may initially be snobbish about seeing childhood classics like mac and cheese or fried chicken brought to the table, but she's never had a scrap of leftovers when she serves them at her dinner parties. And I dearly loved the passage when she was grieving her father and a dear friend came over and made her shepherd's pie, the perfect warm, comforting hug of a meal which says so much about the power of food to soothe and console us. Lori was writing this book in the late 1980s, before the whole comfort food revolution took off. I think she'd be surprised and delighted to see how these types of foods have become so embraced and celebrated. Of course, I loved the chapter English Food, and throughout the book, Lori is a champion and fan of the cuisine of the British Isles, with particular affection for the ritual of tea, British produce, meat, and dairy. She was particularly keen on double cream, which I found so funny <laughs> given our history of talking about that ingredient on Preheated. In fact, I want to read the passage where she asks her friend Richard to bring her some back after his trip to London. So to set this up, she's just had double cream for the first time at her friend Richard's parents' house, and she cannot believe it. <laughs> Back in the States, so great was my longing for double cream that when Richard, who lived in New York, went home for Christmas, I asked him if he would bring me a pint. I met him at the airport one cold January night. He emerged from customs, tall and rattled looking, carrying a dripping bag out in front of him as if it were a wet fish. <laughs> his coat sleeve and his shoes were covered in double cream. <laughs> the lid had slipped off in the bag. The container had slipped sideways, and the resulting mess caused considerable interest among the customs inspectors. What is that? said the customs man to Richard. It's cream for a friend, Richard said. The customs man gave him a hard look, and then his face softened. He spoke gently, as if to an insane person. <laughs> we have dairy products in the United States too, Mr. Davies, he said. But anyone who's been to England could have told him that we don't have cream. <laughs> Oh, I love that. It was so perfect. And I had read that passage, and shortly thereafter, I was in my local grocery store, and I saw that little imported bottle of the Devonshire double cream yes. and clotted cream. And yes. it's either six ounces or eight ounces. It's really small, and it's like 8 or $9. And I was like, yes, this is why we pay this, so that we don't <laughs> have to have friends smuggling it through customs for us. Well, Stefan, I particularly enjoyed the chapter called Feeding the Multitudes, where Lori discusses her work preparing and feeding women in a shelter. And she says, I spent many waking hours wondering what to make for large numbers of people. Mm. It so reminded me of when I did my big batch baking for our local Salvation Army. Yes. And the challenges of feeding a large group and trying to make everyone happy, which is just impossible. <laughs> she had a really funny story about a disastrous Irish dish she called a Colcannon. Mm -hmm. And it was a mixture of green onions, cabbage, and mashed potatoes. She said, there were ladies who were vegetarians and others who were furious at not getting meat for lunch. <laughs> it's just so hard to please a huge group of people with one meal. So I really felt for her when I read that passage. Well, as you can probably tell by those chapters that Andrea and I have called out, in addition to writing well about some delicious meals, Lori is also really funny. To wit, her chapters titled Alone in the Kitchen with an Eggplant which chronicles the many ways she's cooked her favorite veg. 
stuffing, a confession, and spoiler alert, her confession is that she does not like Thanksgiving stuffing, (laughs) repulsive dinners, a memoir, a very funny account of particularly vile meals she's been served over the years. (laughs) My favorite was the hostess who put her own creative spin on eel pie. (laughs) And finally, stuffed breast of veal, a bad idea, which kind of speaks for itself. (laughs) That was such a good one. I also enjoyed noting how things have changed since the book was published in 1988. You might recall her zeal for a delicata squash, and she thoroughly explained what it looks like and what it tastes Mm -hmm. like and how you can cook it. And then she mentioned that she could only find it in one of her local greengrocer markets. And this is when she was living in New York City. Of course, now you can see delicata squash in pretty much every supermarket across the country. One of Lori's abiding principles that I think we see throughout this warm-hearted book really rings true for me as the co-host of this podcast. The next best thing to eating is talking about eating. And I'd like to think that if Lori were around today, she'd be listening to Preheated. Me too. And another of her abiding principles, which will speak to all of our listeners, as to baking, which requires a great deal of specific equipment, my motto is never buy anything except at a tag sale. (laughs) She talked about how you can make meatloaf in a bread pan, but you pretty much can only make bunt cake in a bunt pan, and that section just had me laughing out loud. (laughs) Much like I imagine one of Lori's dinner parties would have been, this book was comforting and cozy. It was also very poignant, as Lori died in the early 1990s when she was only 48. We can only imagine how much cooking and entertaining, not to mention wonderful writing, she would have accomplished had she lived longer. It was just a big, warm hug of a book when I really needed one, and the kind of book I can see myself dipping into whenever I am in need of comfort reading or comfort food. So I thank you so much for bringing it to our attention, Andrea. I'm so glad you enjoyed it, and I really hope our listeners did too. Yes, listeners, tell us, what did you think of Lori Colwyn's home cooking? Drop us a note at hosts at preheatedpodcast.com and let us know, and let us know what else you're reading, food-related or not. And remember, you can find all of our book recs on our website, preheatedpodcast.com. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and next week we're ready for our greatest hits. All month long, we'll be reminiscing about our favorite treats from all four seasons to help us celebrate our 200th episode. A really big deal. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please rate, review, and recommend us on your favorite platforms. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening. Be well and sweet dreams.
Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stephen Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. Anyhow, liquid into wet. Uh, nope, that's the same thing.